Welcome back to American Scene, the show where we talk about movies with American in the title and what they have to say about American identity, culture, and values. My name is Ben Rosen. I'm Alan Austin. As always, if you have anything you want to say about the show, any of our previous episodes, or anything we cover today, please connect with us on Twitter at American Scene underscore, on Instagram at American Scene Pod or send us an email at americanscenepod at gmail.com. Today, we're bearing it all to talk about American Gigolo. Yes. And this is a movie that I obviously knew about as a kid. It would always show on like the the stars type channels and platforms. I know for a fact when I was a kid, it used to play on HBO, but I would never watch it. It was just one of those movies that was on a lot in like the mid nineties on those, what are they like premium cable channels? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I always was like, to me, Richard Gere as a kid, oh, he's in that American Gigolo and that Officer and a Gentleman movie and then Pretty Woman and a couple others. But it was always that like those Officer and a Gentleman and American Gigolo were the serious movies I knew Richard Gere for, even though I had not seen them. Interesting. I don't think, again, like had a a concept of this movie until... Uh, I started studying film in high school and kind of like what you had first mentioned in our American Pie episode uh, about talking to your friend about movies with American in the title. Like this is one of the ones that was kind of like at the top of that list after like Beauty and History X because uh, Hustle hadn't come out yet, things like that. So um, that's probably when I when I first heard of American Gigolo. And then this is the first time I ever watched it. I finally I finally sat down and, and checked it out. And I like Richard Gere. I don't know. How do you feel about Richard? Like I, Primal Fear, I love Primal Fear um, and starring another American uh, movie actor, American History X, Ed Norton, uh, in one of yeah. his, his first roles. Um, I like Richard Gere. I really, I wouldn't say he's one of my favorite actors, but I never mind him being on the screen. And he's got a very welcoming way about him. I don't know how else to put it. I, I always know him for gray hair. Even though he didn't have gray hair in this, but I always just like associate him with gray hair. And my dad actually sat on a plane with him once, just happened to sit next to him in like the early 80s. And he said they just talked business the whole time that he was very nice. So I always like had a soft spot for Richard Gere just from that alone. So yeah, I like him. Yeah, he seems very nice. He seems very natural. Like he doesn't seem, it's not an overbearing charisma in a way of like a Clooney or a Brad Pitt or something like that. It's just very... Yeah, welcoming is a good word, or, or welcome, where I just feel, I don't know, comforted by his screen presence in a way. Yeah, and this is a guy who, more often than not, it seems, plays somebody who's either brooding or serious, but he never seems so, like, cold. It's a very odd dynamic he creates. I could see him playing certain, uh, maybe Michael Douglas roles, but he doesn't have the same kind of, like, edge that we had talked about in, like, The American President, but I could have definitely seen him playing uh, Andrew Shepard in that movie. Yeah, and I could also see him playing the Kevin Spacey role in American Beauty, but with a, a different tweak. You know, the American Beauty role, and we'll talk about this when we get to it, was supposed to be Chevy Chase, was the guy they really wanted to play the role. Oh my God, we are absolutely going to have to talk about that later because <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> and he turned it down, and eventually it got to Spacey. But Gear is... I feel like we're we we are really romanticizing Richard Gere, and to be perfectly honest, not necessarily because of American Gigolo, <laughs> just who he is. It's it, it, you're right. And watching this movie, this performance is not 
it's not a fun one in the sense you would think by hearing the plot of the movie. He's a very serious character. There's almost little to no humor that he exudes. And yet you like him. Yeah, I'm definitely into the movie. So let's let's start at the beginning and then we can talk about like our first impressions and everything. Now that we've we have romanticized Richard Gere a little bit. I like what can I say? Like I I I looked over his list of movies and I'm like, man, I like a lot of these. The last couple of years have been a lot of like independent thriller types, which I have never heard of or seen without researching him. But I think like 90% of them are on Amazon Prime. So if you're a Richard Gere fan out there, a lot of hidden, I would hope, treasures available. But the other big thing about this movie is the Paul Schrader aspect. And this is post-Taxi Driver. is, And this is... Post Raging Bull, I want to say. This is the same year as Raging Bull, 1980. Same year as Okay. Yeah. And then later on, he would, you know, Bringing Out the Dead and Affliction, which are two movies I really, really enjoy. Paul Schrader is somebody that I enjoy his work very, very much. So going into this, I was quite excited. As was I. As was I. I think I was expecting a different kind of movie because of stuff like Taxi Driver, Bringing Out the Dead, which are both obviously New York movies. This is L.A., which we'll get into. So let me just, I'll set the scene. Uh, This is a 1980 film written and directed by Paul Schrader, who seems to love the seedy underbelly of America. (laughs) Um, And you mentioned Taxi Driver. That was 76. That was a few years before this. Between Taxi Driver and this, he also directed Hardcore, about a Midwest man who ventures into the underworld of California pornography to look for his runaway daughter, and Blue Collar, about three workers who discover labor union corruption. So... We already have like set the scene with he's very interested in saying something about America, uh, which is great for our conversation. The film stars Richard Gere, Lauren Hutton, Bill Duke, and Hector Elizondo. Fun fact, Christopher Reeve and John Travolta both turned down the part. Speaking of people who turned down parts in American movies. Honestly, Gere is probably best suited for this role out of those three names you just stated. I would say so. Um, it's kind of a film noir and kind of an earnest love story uh and we'll get into the morality of it and the the uh moral parable that it's telling here mm-hmm. but the short synopsis is gear plays julian a successful and well-regarded male escort in la who caters mostly to older female clientele and he is falsely accused and subsequently framed for murder yes and we talked you know one last pin on the schrader point in relating to what you just said you described the plot and Instead of like a taxi driver or a bringing out the dead, which are very visceral, very violent in terms of both content and dialogue, this plays more to like a De Palma mid-80s B-noir. You know, it's not as heavy. It's not as serious. And most of the violence is either just talked about or not that bad. Like this does not scream Paul Schrader. And when you think Paul Schrader, seedy, gritty tale, you don't think, hey, this is also a vehicle for a new Blondie single. And at first, because Call Me is one of my favorite 80s songs of all time. And I was like, oh, sweet. Call Me's playing. I'm in. And then by the eighth time, Call Me plays in some variety. And there's many varieties of Call Me. I'm like wow, did they just want to buy the rights to one song? And then I later look it up and it was like the official song of American Gigolo. And I was like, ah, this all makes sense. But I will say that one of my favorite things was the constant playing of Call Me by Blondie, which is an amazing pop song, in my opinion. 
I agree. From those opening moments and he's like driving down the PCH and he's got, you know, the wind in his hair and he's in the convertible. I'm like, I am fucking in. I loved it. And uh, let's see. Yeah, well, let's talk about then uh, because you just mentioned the 80s. This is actually set in the late 70s, of course, because the film came out in 1980. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. L.A. in the 70s. Well, I'll ask you, what do you what did you think of the setting and and changing from what we've previously seen of Paul Schrader in New York, the seedy underbelly of New York, to now uh, sort of the glitz and glamour of L.A.? Even with because the seedy elements, you know, you might have these connotations of just like grime when you think of prostitution. It's just like the first instinct people think of. But this is he's a high class guy and all the homes, the apartments, the the hotels, it's very fancy. So this is the sleek LA that we're seeing quite different than the usual Schrader fare, except for a couple scenes here and there. But this is a pretty movie for the most part, I would say. Would you agree with that or no? At least for much of the film until we get to later uh, and he's kind of, he gets a little when, scruffy. When we get towards yeah. the third act, the third act kind of dives a little bit more into the grittiness we know for Schrader. But the first two, the first two acts of this movie are very L.A. pretty. You've got the nice restaurants. You've got high class affairs. You've got big houses, beautiful apartments, a real showcase of the lifestyle. And that's what's needed to justify why gear, you know, does what he does. Yeah. And I think, you know, you just said it pretty perfectly. uh, And it's a great contrast to the New York that you saw in Taxi Driver and the New York of the 70s, which was, as we know, is very well uh, reported, was not great, um, was definitely still uh, suffering. Those are some of the some of the worst uh, times for New York crime, for you know, a real like New York depression. Meanwhile, in LA, um, I read a little bit from an introduction to uh, a book uh, that described uh, LA was still put simply very much the Wild West, the last decade in which Los Angeles bore some resemblance to the frontier town it had once been. Uh, A decade heavily flavored by the spirit of hedonism, experimentalism, and the ongoing absorption of massive social change that had come to light in the 60s. And I think you see all of it, definitely hedonism in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the women that Gear spends time with, they obviously have a lot of money. Everybody has a lot of money in this movie until, you know, we meet Leon. You get to see the nice cars. You get to see the tops down. You get to see the sun glistening off the ocean. You get to see a really pretty life that this guy leads and it's a it's a wonderful setting and i think the last third of the film where you get a little grimier is a very nice contrast i think also it's a great way to say uh, a great way to show la as superficial la obviously has the stereotype of superficiality the cars, as you mentioned, the suits that he's wearing, he's picking out all his suits, that great scene where he's like figuring out what to wear. I think he picks the worst suit, like the worst looking suit. It's so bland. But regardless, um, Julian's perfecting his physical shape. He talks about exclusivity, about being able to get into certain places, uh, country clubs, hotels, restaurants. He's, you know, being known and recognized by everyone. And then it's very quickly and very easily you can peel back that layer to something dirtier, to something grimier, less refined uh, that we get towards the end. So I think 
uh, the film does a good job of of showing LA as both we expect it to be as uh, you know the palm trees and, and all that kind of stuff and also the not so pretty stuff going on right underneath the surface. A lot of similarities to American Psycho. I think in American Psycho, New York is more of a character than LA is in Gigolo. However, you've got gear, you know, doing what Patrick Bateman does, perfecting his look, eating at the nice restaurants, making sure he's on point. But I do think if Julian was in a room with Patrick Bateman, Julian would just be outclassed. Like, I don't think the Julian character has all his ducks in a row the way he needs. And obviously that comes to play. But I think Julian is a flawed anti-hero, but much more likable than, say, a Patrick Bateman. So I don't want to compare him because Julian's not a murderer. Julian's not this. But there is a similarity. And the American title plays into the theme here of needing to look your best, fitting a social role, uh, conquering what you think are the ways people want to see you success like successfully like i know that was a little jumble but you get what i'm saying yeah there is also an earnestness to this film uh and a sincerity whereas psycho has so much more of an edge and a bite and a cynicism i think psycho says bateman will never escape this life he tries to by confessing uh but nobody Mm -hmm. believes him right so what's the point right uh whereas at the end of this film spoiler alert (laughs) uh Julian escapes the life that he's been living by the grace of uh, true love. So there's certainly a more hopeful tone to this film. And Julian's a lot more redeemable than Patrick Bateman. Julian's just kind of a kind of a dummy in a lot of ways. Like he's very easily framed for murder and he's like very bad at trying to defend himself. We should talk about that because that's the first thing that I picked up about this film. And um, I'm going to use what you just said to talk about sex work in America very briefly. Obviously, it's still illegal in almost everywhere in America, uh, but it's not in the powers of the federal government um, to say whether it's legal or illegal. It's a, a state's issue, um, but it's only legal in a few counties in Nevada in the form of brothels. That's not to say that it doesn't exist uh, and that it doesn't happen because it absolutely does. Um, it's estimated to generate about $14 billion a year, so it is a huge, huge business. Um, and as I read throughout history, it was definitely more... It was more out in the open than than it currently is now. And also, it's everywhere in American film uh, and, and in TV. Uh, sex work is portrayed in many, many different ways. There are common tropes that you see. Uh, but I was just looking through a list of how many films featured characters as sex workers or gigolos or uh, escorts. And it's a lot. And I was kind of amazed by that, that at the same time that it is illegal it is so fascinating to creatives, writers, directors, actors, um, and it persists as a topic in entertainment. And to your point, that he's kind of a dummy, you're right, because my first thought would be, oh, well, obviously, if this guy is saying I murdered this woman, I should probably call up my buddy Leon, who's the reason I was there in the first place. But there is a reason why he couldn't just come out and tell the detective, Detective Sunday, by the way, I am a gigolo and this is why I was there. And if you can just wrap your head around that and and, and, and be okay with that and not like arrest me for what I do for a living, you know, there is there is a fear 
of people in in sex work that they can't go to the police with something that's going on, that they can't be completely honest. Do you know what I mean? I have an argument to that within the film, though. Sunday already knows he's a prostitute. And before the investigation gets ramped up, they acknowledge to each other that, sorry, sex worker, gigolo. They acknowledge that each other knows that he's a gigolo. They've acknowledged it. Now, if anything, he can grant himself some immunity by saying, look, here's what happened. I wasn't there, but I can tell you who set this up for me. He gives up Leon because he's already got enough connects to get work outside of Leon. In fact, you almost get the sense he never wants to work for Leon again anyway. So there are some outs his character could have taken logistically. And I don't think if he sold out Leon, there'd be people coming for his head and he'd need to enter some sort of witness protection. So I just think Sunday already knows the the jig, hello. And Julian has a chance. It's definitely a better option than what he does in the film, which is at every turn, say and do the exact wrong things you should do when people think you've murdered someone and you haven't. So... Again, to my point of a dummy, I, I see what you're saying, the fear of you know outing yourself as doing something illegal in the eyes of the law and not wanting to have repercussions, but this is a murder investigation. And if you are trying to defend your character and your name and not go to jail for that, pretty sure you'd uh, tell him what you knew yeah. in exchange at least for some sort of, hey, you know, cut me some slack with what I'm about to tell you. Yeah, especially because, as you said, like Sunday kind of buddies up to him. A little bit like there's no real threat of violence that's going to befall Julian in any way like so in any case I don't want to get mired down in the details and where we think the plot kind of goes wrong because it's all kind of in service of this idea and the way it gets there isn't great but we should be talking about the theme as a as a whole. So let me get back to what your point which is the creatives looking at this world and being fascinated by it. Uh, people like to live in fantasy. A lot of people see something like this the same way they see gangster movies or horror movies. or They want to live in a world they don't get to have every day. And this is a world that might seem exciting to a lot of people. It might seem like something they fantasize about, they, they, they've thought about, and they just never acted on. And there's definitely a market for that. When you say there's a $14 billion market for those who actually do go through with it, I'm sure there's even more who have thought about it and want to live vicariously through film, obviously. And this is one of those topics that seems dangerous. And in a, you know what I'm trying to say by that? Yeah, we're attracted to the forbidden elements of society. Certainly, Mm -hmm. certainly. Um, It is portrayed in any number of ways uh, throughout film history. And and as I said, there are various tropes. we don't have to get into like the hooker with the heart of gold or, or things like that. I watched this back to back, by the way, with Midnight Cowboy, uh, which both deal with similar themes. Well, yes, yeah, similar. I mean, they're both uh, gigolos. Um, right. Julian more successful <laughs> than uh, than Joe Buck. Both characters tend to be with older females as well, if I remember correctly. Yes, I think Joe Buck is only successful with one woman at the beginning, uh, and only briefly successful because then she takes money from him. He doesn't even get paid. Uh, but uh, it's talking about a dumb character. I did not enjoy Midnight Cowboy. This guy, it's like, been at, a while since I've seen it. At at every turn, he's just like can't catch a break. But also, I don't feel bad because he's just an idiot. 
like I don't know, whatever. And, and the drivers in that movie are terrible. Oh, they was walking there. He was walking was right walking. there. He's walking. a crosswalk. One of the all-time greatest improv lines, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we should talk about the Julian character a little more because in the beginning, you know, there is kind of a double-edged sword with with this character. Uh, and I think to, to your point about fantasy wanting to live vicariously through certain characters, I think you, at the beginning you definitely want to be Richard Gere. There's something both like desirable and repugnant about the, this life that he leads. Um, like he's got the tailored Armani suits and he's got like the kind of bachelor pad that that actually that I wrote down like Patrick Bateman would kill for. But then he's also shown to be like, or, or the world that he lives in is shallow and materialistic and uh, he is kind of a parasite, right? Like at the end of the day, like he's he's a hanger on. I think the politician calls him a hanger on. There is something desirable about him at the same time that we recognize that it wouldn't be sustainable. It wouldn't, it, it's, it, 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 too good to be true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a certain aspect of guys want to be him. Girls want to be with him just generally, regardless of what he does for a living, but you're right. It's not a sustainable life. And we, as an audience know that right off the bat, like this guy, he like, look, it's, it's the, the whole idea of uh, sex work is a touch and go kind of thing right because of the human traffic element because of uh the pimp and you know the the the, that kind of element where it is an abusive cold world at times and just not ethical in certain ways so it's it's like do we want to root for this type of character and i think the film succeeds in having us root for him it's just a very fine line when it comes to this type of world, these type of people. And a lot of times, you know, obviously victims of human trafficking are the workers, right? They're either sent here with a promise of a better life or you do this for me and things will work out for you. And then it's an endless cycle of, you know, whatever it may be, not knowing the language, trusting bad people. It's a very, very seedy world. And this film, you know, I think part of it is because here is this, Joe America type guy who's doing the job. You know, here's this handsome, white, early 30s, late 20s male who's the sex worker. And we just assume he's doing it by choice. That is a good point because we don't get a sense of where he came from. He doesn't admit where he came from. And upon thinking about it more, considering it more, you wonder if maybe there is some buried trauma that he doesn't want to admit to, how he got into this game in the first place, how he got to have this kind of clientele. Did he work for Leon for a very long time doing things he didn't necessarily want to do before he got here? Um, is is that what why he's so guarded? Or do we just read it as, uh, you know, he got he got lucky once uh, and then that kind of word of mouth kind of, you know, kind of spread and he was able to build his clientele that way and, and he really does genuinely enjoy it. But it does, I, I would say on its face, it seems like he's doing it by choice. And that's where the morality tale element of this story comes into play because Schrader, and, and I pulled this from the Rolling Stone article, the gigolo is his metaphor, Schrader's metaphor 
for man's inability to accept love, grace, and good outside himself. Julian Kay is the doyen of the Hollywood escorts who prey on the hopelessly rich in pursuit of capitalist mobility. He is ethereal. He has no past. Uh, as I mentioned, the quote that uh, uh, that they write the, when he's in bed and says, I came from this bed, Julian replies, when asked about his background, you can learn everything there is to know about me by fucking me. And so what he's arguing in this film is by choosing to be in this work, he has given up his connection, to his, a true connection to humanity, to love, and to be able to experience things, emotions in the same way that everyone else does. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's what Schrader's arguing here. And 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 Julian can only escape the world that he's in and the situation that he's in by finally accepting uh, the love of Michelle. I mean, if that's what he's saying. You, know. <laughs> <laughs> you don't necessarily uh, agree with it? I don't know. No, I think it's, it's, it's like a fine explanation. Like you said buried trauma. Well, yeah, of course. There are many instances in this movie where the guy is, it's very clear. He doesn't know how to connect in certain ways until he learns how. And that usually comes from some sort of experience. We'll put it that way. So sure. Yes. Yeah. I think there's something about the character that now we would call toxic masculinity, uh, turning away from genuine help, not wanting to be vulnerable, um, and th the fact that Julian is driven to the absolute like breaking point, the most desperate points, you know, almost to complete self-destruction mm -hmm. before he can accept help uh, and seek redemption. Um, there's definitely something there that I think recently we've been addressing more. You know, it's, it's very similar to a character, Eddie Adams, Dirk Diggler from Boogie Nights. This person who is very sure of themselves with the one thing they feel they're really good at. But when it comes to the world around them, they're almost like chickens with their heads cut off. And with Julian, we get to see him through the turned up to 11 of situations to happen in one's life, you know, come down to earth and kind of figure out who he is as a man, as a person. So I do think this film succeeds in the journey for Julian in that regard. I like that comparison uh, to the Dirk Diggler character because you also see in that film the way that working in this world that is a little underground is... Um, it's sex-related. It's uh, not seen as... It's not mainstream, right? And it's not completely accepted. And that would have been the 70s as well, around the same time as, as this film actually takes place. And you see how that work also leads him to darker places. And you mentioned that he feels very sure of himself in the in the one thing that he's that he's good at and you know that's kind of why he feels like he can't get out because he doesn't know how to do anything else. Um and he's kind of put himself in a world in a situation in a position where he can easily be ostracized. Um uh because at the end of the day, he's he's nobody. Right. And I think it's, you know, it's obviously not fair to say the one thing he's good at. It's the thing he feels he's best at. But there's that really nice scene, which is like a, a harsh reality for Julian, where, where Michelle just flat out says to him, I don't want to make love to you because when you make love to me, you're not 
connecting with me. Like you think you're this like really good lover, but that's not what I want. I don't want the professional. I want the human being inside. And I thought that was a really nice touch. Well, right. And and that goes to something else he says in the film that he thinks of himself as giving pleasure to women who aren't experiencing it otherwise, but he's seeing it not, he's seeing pleasure not as true connection, but as something to give, as something to be bought, as something material, as right. uh, uh, something tangible um, a- as a service, uh, and not as uh, what this film is arguing you should be seeking is is love and sex as true human connection. Right. So with the whole idea of Julian, the character, why don't we get into the movie now and like, you know, the movie for what it is? Because obviously the themes here are what we spoke of, but now how does it fit into the story constructed by Paul Schrader and the movie we watched? Because I watched it and I didn't have like a strong connection with the film. I didn't think more about it than getting ready for this podcast. It didn't sit with me. It didn't really wash over me the way like American Splendor, which we just reviewed, did, or other films we've watched. This to me was just kind of a movie. I watched it and it was what it was. Like I didn't leave thinking that was something truly thought provoking or magnificent. I would tend to agree. The opening moments, I think the setup of the film, I was kind of excited uh, for the possibility of where this could go. And when he meets the woman uh, who is later m- murdered, I got the sense that, oh, this was going to be kind of a really unique film noir um, because I haven't seen this character in the kind of role that would be like tempted by a femme fatale uh, and is is something gets pinned on him and he's got to figure things out and, and every moment is kind of rife with with that conflict and uncertainty and who can i trust and it's not that Uh, there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of times in the in the film where he's just kind of like hanging out by the pool like it takes a while for the stakes of the film to really catch up to him the film doesn't have a momentum i think that's its biggest problem because julian's also not this slick guy who kind of puts the pieces of the puzzle together to get himself out of this mess. It goes completely awry for him. It blows up in his face. The whole situation just kind of, he kind of lucks into his salvation. So it's not like we're watching this super cool James Bond-esque leading man in a thriller. He's a guy who's not that smart. I, I hate to put it that way, but he's not equipped for this kind of movie. The character is not equipped for the movie and maybe that takes away from it for us, but I love Lauren Hutton as Michelle. I totally buy her hook, line and sinker. And the fact that she would be into this young guy younger than herself, um, that it's not just for appearance sake, you know? And again, it's a movie where they're the forbidden love. She's married, you know, he shouldn't be with her, but we're rooting for them to be together, even though theoretically that's not what should be. Uh, I buy that. I'm in on that. I think all the side characters, uh, Bill Duke, um, the woman, Anne, who's his pro- who's his pimp, and then what's the older lady who hires him often? The one who we, she brings uh, to the art gallery, and he does that terrible uh, homosexual impression. He does that horrendous gay man impression 
yes. that lady, all those characters are not likable, which helps, you know, us like Michelle and Julian at the end of the day. You know, everyone around him isn't nice. They're not nice people. Or honest. I would say honest. They're not honest. They're they're definitely shady, shady characters. So the fact that Michelle is in Julian's life really enhances the film. Yeah. I love the scene when they first meet because there is a lot of subtext. And when they can finally be honest with each other, that's when they finally connect. So I do appreciate what this film is going for, especially with their with their relationship. I don't love the way that we get there. And I don't love the assumption that those who work as sex workers are looking to be saved, are looking for redemption necessarily. Uh, and I won't speak for that. You know, I'm not going to say that broadly speaking, but that's the assumption Trader is making, that this person needs to be saved. Yeah, and similarly, it gives off the vibe that people need to be saved from marriage, which is not always the case as well. And I do appreciate, I talked about him crassly and, you know, being a dummy. He knows five languages, which is pretty cool. It's a nice touch to the character. It shows that he's at least trying to be the best at what he does. Um, But I found him to be quite cold to her at the beginning when they first meet. But it's a nice scene. It's almost like, why is he being so harsh to her? He, he he storms away. He's like, I can't, I can't, I'm not, I'm not talking to you. Like he gets very defensive around her and I don't understand why. Well, he's got an angle. Like he went in there expecting something, expecting a transaction. And when he discovered that they were not on the same page about that, that's when he exited the conversation. Well, it's like, I, I actually, I like that because it goes to his character saying, well, I'm not going to waste my time. I thought this was going to be something and it's not. And don't have a good night. Um, I want to talk about the commentary that the film also makes on American social, racial, and sexual hierarchy. Obviously, wealth and status affords you freedom from legal ramifications. Clearly, you know, the the framing of Julian is, is bought and paid for. Um, politicians... Uh, you know, the film implies are inherently better than sex workers. You know, they can create policies and laws that foster the stratification that that we see in the film. Uh, and police who enforce those laws, they're better than sex workers. The film is is showing that. Um, Sunday, which I also love the name Sunday in terms of the moral element or the uh, religious element of seeking grace because Sunday, right? Uh, Sunday asks Julian, doesn't it bother you what you do? It's illegal. And obviously Julian's response is, well, men make laws. Sometimes they're wrong. They're stupid uh, or they're jealous, which we do see from uh, from Detective Sunday. And I just, I had to laugh at like a law enforcement officer, especially after the year that we've had, making a sex worker feel guilty about what he does. Different time though. Like, sure, sure, but with you're with a contemporary it now okay. with a contemporary context, I'm like, yeah, but you have to enforce these laws that you know. Do you inherently agree with everything that you do? You know, um, so anyway, I, I sure. like that line. I generally like Detective Sunday, though. 
I think Hector Elizondo's performance is great. I think this is a character who may not be flawless, but he also feels like he's good at what he does. And, you know, he's pretty mean-spirited to Julian. I know he buddies up to him, but the whole time you're thinking he just wants to take him down. I, I thought it was a really nice performance. I like the scene where Michelle's husband confronts him because there is another one of those lines uh, like the line I mentioned Sunday, sort of implying a moral high ground. The senator telling Julian, uh, I know a whore when I see one. And I think a politician saying that, uh, maybe that's one of the, the American moments I should have saved. Uh, but uh, I don't know that, that Schrader was intending uh, an irony with that line in the way that I read it. I think he was. He He's written enough about politicians, whether it be Taxi Driver or other works, where he f- seems to have his finger on what that life is. I hope so. I hope so. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But uh, so this film also implies that folks at the bottom can be bought. You know, Leon saying that, like, there's always somebody who's going to pay more, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Folks at the bottom like Leon and like Julian, even though Julian wants to believe that he's not in the bottom, uh, they don't unite. They can't unite. They can't say, hey, we're both getting screwed here, you know? And Leon telling Julian, oh, they'll they'll cast you out when they don't need you anymore. The fact that Leon doesn't have that same kind of self-awareness, well, this could probably happen to me, um, you know, that they, instead of allying themselves with uh, folks of their same class uh, and, and their same situation, they ally themselves with wealthy, higher status individuals against their common man. Uh, right. So I, I, I appreciate that element and, and I think speaks to something very relevant to where we are in America uh, with certain uh, certain people who like a certain previous president for being as rich as he is or says he is. <laughs> yeah. There are a couple things also. Uh, Julian gets away with talking to his madam and demanding certain payouts or jobs that I don't think a female would get away with in, in bargaining and negotiating. I think it's very one-sided to what real life is. And just in this movie, I have no idea how it is in real life, to be honest with you. I've never been in the room where it happens, so to speak. I have no idea what a transaction looks like. I have no idea what the dynamic is between a madam, a pimp, and their client. But it does, I do get the sense that Julian has a little bit more pull than what really would be. You're absolutely right from the reading that I did. Uh, Schrader is constructing a story to make a point, not necessarily to reflect reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reality of sex work is absolutely not this um so i mean we could we could i could we can say that with a pretty high degree of certainty um the one last thing i'll mention in terms of uh hierarchies uh there is obviously an underlying homophobia and racism Mm -hmm. um that the straight white male is innocent the gay black hustler is guilty and duplicitous i love bill duke's performance i think he is excellent as Leon, but the film is clearly showing there's there's a disparity here. Um, the white female pimp attracts clean, high-class, older female clients, while the black male pimp's assignments carry a darker edge. 
There's, mm-hmm. you know, so so that's part of this as well. The film's um, portrayal of hierarchies uh, that I think do exist in America, absolutely. Yeah, and you know what? It's almost like at the end when Julian's on his last desperate attempt to save himself with Leon, he's now offering to do things which are supposed to be read as like low, but they're just things that a straight white male wouldn't want to do. Yeah, to to do, uh, to turn tricks, to perform gay sex acts or 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 kink is seen as disreputable, disgusting. Um, that he only right. resorts to that when he's absolutely completely desperate. Yeah, for sure. And then, as you mentioned, where he plays this effeminate character at the auction house, same thing. Terrib- where it's terribly like, tone deaf, but being read as unthreatening in that case. So that's another another element of this stratification of of you know uh, certain types of people, certain types of characters, uh, sexual orientation. I was I did a. This is all going to get to a point real quick. I just want to speed through this. We got my fiance and I recently did a rewatch of The Sopranos, and that TV show does not hold back with its homophobia, racism. It is these characters in their day to day life, right? And I think part of why the show was well regarded was because it was honest to that point. So I'm interested to see where the American Gigolo television series that's coming out based on the film goes in that sense will it paint the main characters as these you know moral types who just happen to be doing this or will it try to be honest to what they want that world to be seen as you're gonna have to tell me more about this american gigolo tv series because i did not sure all right well don't look it up i want to be the one to reveal it oh my gosh no i already did yeah john bernthal interesting see he's a guy with an edge next time i see you in person uh remind me to do my uh john bernthal punisher impression (laughs) it's just a lot of grunting and nodding like that's the whole (laughs) okay i like him though oh he's incredible he's incredible but uh, as the punisher it's yeah (laughs) it's gonna be a showtime series which is very on brand it's probably the probably the cable network you saw it on uh as a kid not stars it was showtime (laughs) <laughs> probably um we'd have to cover it one day i think that would be a good time to revisit it when that when that airs um i mentioned earlier uh the materialism superficiality uh lifestyle uh that you see about la and there's definitely commentary on that in this film as well i think even the poster for the film looks like an ad for giorgio armani doesn't it and i'm like i god i wish i could dress like this um, obviously it's stylized with a film noir, like kind of black and white aesthetic and the fractured light through the, through the blinds, like implying Julian's imprisonment, you know, right. uh, there's something inherently evil and dangerous about such blind materialism, uh, the film is saying, but I, I would say that although I don't agree with the implication that sex work makes you less than or disconnected from humanity or emotion or or makes you in, inherently immoral i would agree that an overemphasis on materialism or superficiality does wanting to you know you see them at the auction house and wanting to buy certain things you see uh julian framed in front of a sculpture of like this adonis torso in uh in Anne's home there is something dehumanizing about materialism i definitely agree with that and and the pursuit of consumerism or you know treating people i think as we talked about in the american hustle episode 
like pawns, like things to be used in your pursuit of gain or, or whatever you want, is immoral. Uh, so, so I do... Uh, find myself agreeing with that aspect of the film what do you think absolutely there's a lot in this film in terms of materialistic what is something they say is stolen from the crime scene from the woman murdered jewels so you know yeah it's all over this thing and you know i would say that that's an american moment but that's definitely a worldly phenomenon to be materialistic and want you know and i think most European countries are way more in tune with that than even we are maybe but i do think that america I mean, we're like the largest economy on the planet, right? But we kind of brought capitalism and sort of unbridled uh, consumerism to, to the peak that it is at right now, don't you think? Sure. I think America was definitely a big engine in... Uh, right, but I'm not saying that America, I'm saying like an individual's need and wants for something they don't have already that's considered better than is not just uh, an American thought process. Sure. No, that's fine. Yeah. But I agree with you on all that other stuff. Culturally, I think there is something inherently American about about consumerism and and about about materialism. And certainly the LA of it uh, speaks to that as well. It is very American to live in excess. And live beyond your means or live a style that isn't actually who you are. Yeah, feasible. Feasible, sure. Uh, or sustainable, as you see with uh, with Julian, mm-hmm. um, and and his pad. Uh, you also, I think, mentioned the the benefit dinner um, where Julian first first meets the senator, but also there, Michelle is on his arm as as the wife of the politician, not as somebody herself to stand on her own. Uh, I, I think she even she says to Julian in that first meeting or, or one of their first interactions, he thinks it's chic to have a bilingual wife. Not he really loves me, but right. you know, again, it's like treating people like objects uh, is is definitely in this film and something that we've covered on this podcast before as uh, as an American element for sure. For the mini-sode, we'll have to come back on a couple things because I have in my notes that he says he studied other languages in Nam. So maybe he spent time as a soldier, which we didn't really, you know, we mentioned where did he come from and this, that, and the other thing. So there might be some other things to look back at in the mini-sode. So if you're sitting there at home saying, what about this, what about that? We do relook at some things and we will bring it up if necessary next time. But to the point that you brought up about really believing in this relationship between uh, Julian and Michelle, theirs is the only relationship that isn't transactional. So yeah, there there are some elements that really shine, uh, some themes that really shine and commentary on aspects of American culture. And certainly, again, the setting LA is, I think, perfect for making all these kinds of statements. Th- there are some really great elements of this movie that are kind of overshadowed by a uh, not so intelligent plot. I, I also really quick want to, I kind of want to argue you on Detective Sunday. I know you come at it with the, the cop who's preaching do right when he's still a cop in what is like a checkered society in that regard. But I do think that Detective Sunday follows the law and tries to do the best of his ability to keep people in line or else he wouldn't be named Sunday by the writer. I think he's honest in his intentions. Well, I think naming him Sunday... Having that religious implication, I can accept the judgment that he is placing upon Julian's character. Again, within the context of the film, it all makes sense. I'm just saying, from a 2021 perspective, 
hearing a policeman have that kind of judgment about somebody who's honestly just trying to get by in life, you know, uh, and, and do the thing that he thinks he's good at. It's a little rich. That's all I'm saying. In, right. in outside of the film, but in the context of the film, it absolutely makes sense. Uh, the the moral judgment that he's placing on Julian, I totally accept that. So, with all this being said, why don't we bring it to American Moments? We're playing our song. I love it. Great. <laughs> what uh, do you got? Okay, so first, you know, one off the bat, one I mentioned earlier, and that's. The fact that this movie uses a hit pop song to sell tickets to 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 market itself, uh, you've got Blondie, "Call Me," "Hot Song," all over this movie. Talk about you know just milking it all for the the money that was exchanged transaction huh? to to get this song in the film. It's very American to just, and, and, and in fact, they don't do it as much anymore where a song is associated with a movie. And that was the jam back in the day for, for big time movies, every movie. And one that stands out to me, Dashboard Confessional uh, for the Spider-Man movie. <laughs> that Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man 2. So that's the last time I can remember it truly happening. But it used to happen all the time where there would be a music video with the song with movie clips in the music video. One of my favorites from the early 2000s, speaking of Spider-Man, was the other superhero movie, Daredevil, which I don't know if you knew that there was an original song for that movie by The Calling. Do you What's know the, the song? Yeah. Uh, the song from Daredevil was called For You. But you're right, you'll get a soundtrack, sure, but you won't get featuring the single blah, blah, blah from the movie. And a lot of times now you just get an original song so that you can get a best original song nomination, not to kind of be the thing that you hear on the radio all the time. And this you still hear on the radio all the time, this song, uh, Call Me. You're right, because it used to be, what's this, what album was this song on? The soundtrack for blah, blah, blah. The most modern version i can think of is a star is born that would pro and that's a musical i i guess no it is and, and again that is where you see it those are the only movies where you really see that happen anymore is with musicals or with with movies that have a musical element to it like a star is born and i definitely now that we talked about the calling and dashboard confessional we're definitely going to talk in the minisode about our favorite hit singles from uh from from movies for sure okay okay um, but that would be my biggest american moment we've covered most of the other stuff the cap you know the the the, the lifestyle seeking the materialism all that uh, so I have an American moment also from the opening sequence, which you probably would have seen during Wow Wow Call Me was playing Jerry Bruckheimer's name. I mean, the biggest American movies, right? Like bombastic. Like when you think Jerry Bruckheimer, you think American action movies, right? Yeah, I guess. But like to me, the most American big action movie of all time is Independence Day. And that's Roland Emmerich, not even Jerry Bruckheimer. No, I wouldn't qualify that as American because, I mean, yes, yes, America's leading the way, but that becomes like a global effort, right? To save the world, not America, where you get like Con Air as Brockheimer, uh, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, Days of Thunder, Bad Boys, The Rock, Con Air, Armageddon, okay, he's saving the world, okay, whatever. I'll buy it, I'll buy it. Pearl, Pearl Harbor, I mean, huge American moment, that whole... <laughs> 
that movie is an American moment. Uh, Black Hawk Down, same thing. Like, I saw Jerry Bruckheimer's name and I was like, one of the all-time American film producers. Well, in that case, this is out of character for him. It was very early on in his uh, career. Um, oh, Julian uh, tells the other guy in the lineup, you ain't getting paid, you're getting screwed. Very American moment. And also, I think there's that's the same sort of thing in American Hustle, which I picked out um, as, as an element of uh, Christian Bale's character. And then in response, the guy mutters, this ain't Russia yet, I know my rights. <laughs> Great Cold War era line. Um... Politics taking place in a gold ballroom filled with wealthy people, where at the same time, the politician is saying, in times of austerity such as these, the privileged should lead the way and set an example. I'm like rolling my eyes. Uh, and clearly that was intentional. You know, the, the stratification of, of wealth and, and uh, you know, the status of these people and Julian sitting there being like, mm-hmm. I, I'm not one of you, you know, in as much as I'm trying to pretend to be. Uh, he is not part of this class. Uh, but the wealthy and elite as being out of touch with everyday people, you know, governing for everyone, but doing so from a gold laden ballroom is just yeah. spot on. I mean, to, to bring this to a close, man, you know, again, this may be a decent morality tale uh, with some accurate readings of American hierarchy as lifestyle, toxic masculinity we mentioned, but it's definitely not a realistic portrait of sex work. Um, having the title American Gigolo as a way to say American sex worker is not white male, beautiful, heterosexual Richard Gere. I don't think this movie necessarily needs to be called American. It could have just been called Gigolo. I like. I, there's a better title out there for this film that's not not to poo-poo on just calling it Gigolo. I just mean there's a better title out there that's not American Gigolo because I think the elements that we picked out of it are not really the point of the film. They're part of the overall atmosphere, but they're they're not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is 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 making this moral argument for finding grace through true love and that's something universal that's not that's that's not a uh, specific to uh, right. america so in that case my rating would be you know in terms of american one and a half convertibles down the pch i want to go with two armani suits because i don't have any right now and i wouldn't mind having a couple <laughs> <laughs> Because there are a lot of things I like. There are there are a lot of things I like about this movie. It just falls off for me towards the end. It's got a very s- sloppy last couple scenes, too, with him in jail where they go to the weird blackouts. and Yeah, where they're just like, okay, we got to get to the point where he gets saved. So let's just montage through some, some really brief scenes uh, fade in and out until we get there like yeah it's just uh, strange it's strange again it's not a great movie do i recommend it not really like i don't think it's a must watch with the amount of content out there today but if you're a richard gear fan this is quintessential richard gear and i think a pretty good richard gear again like just to bring it back to where we started i'm a fan yeah i love richard gear i'm a fan And that's a wrap on American Gigolo. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we're doing, please give us a rating, leave a positive review. You can give us your unfiltered opinion on Twitter at AmericanScene underscore. You can have fun with Alan here on Instagram at AmericanScenePod. And if you'd like to follow either of your patriotic co-hosts, I'm Ben Rosen on Twitter at NotThatBenRosen. I'm Alan Austin at Alan underscore Austin underscore. And we'll see you next time.